Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Amen. So Mark chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, you who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are two things I always encourage everyone around me to remember, especially with respect to other people. Two things that I believe that every Christian should memorize and two things that every Christian, I believe, should, should live out in their own lives when it comes to other people. And they are, number one, we need to remember that our job is to spread the seed. Our job and our part of the mission is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to share the hope that we have. We're to proclaim the good news. We're to proclaim the, the word of God with our mouths and we're to demonstrate the love of God with our actions. But at the end of all of it, at the end of the day, right, what we do and what we're called to do is to spread the seed of God's word. That is our part. It is God who makes it grow. God is the one who causes the word to grow, and he's the one that causes his truth to take root in people's hearts. Right? He's the one that, that plows their, their heart with, with the, uh, the plow of conviction. God is the one who takes the word that we sow and, and transforms it in the lives of other people, right? That's the part that we don't control. Our part is to faithfully and continually and deliberately so spread the seed. Number two, we are to never give up on people. Because God is the one who changes lives, not us. God is the one who radically transforms people, not us. You see, I think that, that we all have a tendency to look at the lives of other people around us and, and we think to ourselves, they're just hopeless. You know, they're never, ever, ever going to change. They're just going to continue to make one bad decision after the next and it's not going to ever get better. They're just going to continue to be selfish. They're going to continue to do what they're doing. I mean, if we'll be honest with ourselves, we look at people around us and we think they're never going to change. But the thing is, as people who love Christ, our job is not to judge whether or not they will change or who will change. Right? Our job is to share the hope of Christ with them and then not give up on them, which means we continue to love them and pray for them. Our God is to trust that God is at work in their lives on some level and that God will work all things out for his glory and ultimately for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We are to trust God and believe that God is a God of restoration and that God is the God of possible because all things, as the Bible tells us, is possible with God. We, we are to trust that God is 
A God who can take fallen, broken people and save them and radically transform them into something new. And then use them in a mighty way for his own purposes. We're just not to give up on people. And the reason why I mentioned that this morning is, first of all, as part of our mission, we need to live this way. We need to spread the seed of the gospel, and we need to, and we need to love and, and care for and not give up on people. And, and the second reason is the, the author of the book of, of Mark is someone God didn't give up on. You see, when we read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't always really think about who the authors are. I mean, John is, is obviously the Apostle John, you know, one of, the, one of the closest people to Jesus in his life. He was a direct eyewitness of the work of Christ. He was a direct eyewitness of, the, of his death and his burial and resurrection. And, and Matthew, though, he might not have been as prominent in the, in the Gospels as far as what he's done and how many times he gets mentioned, but he was also a disciple and an eyewitness. And, and Luke, right, we know that from history that, that he was a medical doctor, which means he was highly educated, and he became a disciple of Paul. And, and what we know that, that Luke wrote, you know, he, not only did he write the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts, which is the chronicle of the early church. And Luke is regarded by New Testament scholars, both religious and, and skeptical, as one of the most excellent historians in, in all of antiquity. His contributions to the New Testament are super important for us. And we know that he was a man of, in, in, of, of honor and integrity. But, but what about Mark? Do you ever think about who Mark was? I mean, I had heard ever since I became a Christian that Mark was a disciple of Peter and that, that he wrote down what Peter said the gospel is. That's, that's what I knew. That's what I've been, I've been told, you know. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, is there's some, some truth to that. But the, but the reality is there's, there's actually more to this story. You see, Mark is not just some random, you know, disciple of Peter. Mark is someone who actually shows up several times in the New Testament. We just don't always recognize that it's him. Mark is actually someone, you know, he, who was in the, who's right in the middle of, the, of the, uh, what was happening in early church history. In fact, we find in the book of Acts, when, when Peter was arrested for preaching the gospel, he was rescued by an angel supernaturally, and after he escaped, the very first place he went for safety was the house of a lady named Mary, whose son was named John, whose other name was Mark. You see, early on in church history, Mark was someone who was close to the apostle Peter. In fact, Peter in his letter, 1 Peter, describes Mark as his son. Peter had great love for Mark. There was great affection for him. He had a high regard for Mark. They were very close. But Mark was not only also close to the apostle Peter, he was also close to the apostle Paul. In the book of Acts, we read that Mark had accompanied Paul on one of his missionary journeys, a journey that, that Paul had taken, you know, uh, with him, a prominent member um, of the early church, a disciple named Barnabas. And, after, and we learn later that, that Mark was not only you know, close to Paul and Barnabas, but he was also the, the, the cousin of Barnabas. And so Mark is not just some obscure, random guy who wrote the, the, you know, a secondhand account of the gospel. Mark was someone who was well-connected in the early church. He knew the apostles. He hung out with them. He spent time with them. He heard all of the early stories. He was part of the early church's growth. He was part of the, the very first ministries of the church. He was there when all of this was happening, right? Basically from the beginning. And what is, what's most interesting, though, about Mark 
is not really what he accomplished and who he was connected to. What, what was most interesting about him is the fact is, is how bad he failed. You see, Mark was, was a, an abject failure early on in ministry. In the book of Acts, we find out that Paul, on his missionary journey with, with Barnabas, that Mark basically quit on them. <laughs> he just tapped out. And Mark basically abandoned them. And, 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 I mean, if you think about it, he made a commitment to them to go with him and be on mission. And, and we're talking about missionary work, you know, in the first century where, like, there is no GPS and no navigation and, you know, no email and phone and, and you know, no banks to go to the ATM to get money. I mean, we're talking about, you know, really hard work. And he made a commitment to be in ministry, but then he shirked that responsibility and went home. And this was such a big deal that the Apostle Paul, years later, he and Barnabas were about to go on another trip together, and Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them. And Paul just would not have it. He was like, nope, that is not happening. In fact, in Acts 15, it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take, uh, uh, to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul's like, nope, he's not going with us. He, I'm not, we can't depend on that kid. And, it, and look what it says. He goes, and there was a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Think about this. This was such a big disagreement that, you know, that, that Mark causes Basically, two long-time friends, people who'd worked together for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who've seen supernatural things happen, seen God move, right? Two people that are super close, they just like, fine. If that's how it's going to be, we're not going to hang out with each other no more. We're going to go our two separate ways. You see, Mark had failed, and Mark had let people down, and Mark had proven that he couldn't be depended on. And, and there was probably, you know, some thought by others around him that he's probably not going to change. He's just irresponsible. He's just selfish. He, you know, he's here to do the easy work, but he's not here to do the hard work. He doesn't have what it takes to be in ministry. And so probably there were some people around him that were around him was willing to give up on him. But there were others who didn't give up on him. Barnabas didn't give up on him. In fact, Barnabas took him with him on his own missionary journey. And as we read through the letters of Paul later on in his life, that we find that Mark and Paul actually became reconciled. And Paul had held Mark in great esteem and affection. From, from the prison cell, um, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and instructs him to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. This is near the end of Paul's life. This is, this is near the, where, where, where Paul is giving last instructions to Timothy. Maybe he might see him again before Paul dies. And one of the last people, one of the people he's talking, thinking about in his letter is, is Mark and says he is useful to me in ministry. Something big must have changed. You see, something must have happened in Mark's life that, 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 that changed him. And he became somebody who was well-known and respected and you know, by the likes of Peter and Paul. And, mo and more than that, he was someone that God chose to write one of the four Gospels that we have in our Bible. And so, so as we begin this new series where we're going to walk through the Gospel of Mark together, let us be mindful of, of who God chose to write this, to write this book. 
He chose a broken, imperfect man who made huge mistakes. But yet, God and people like Barnabas didn't give up on him. You see, Mark was a living example of the transforming power of the grace of God. And I think it's something to bear in mind as we go through this together. Now with that, starting, we're starting a brand new series titled Following Jesus. And this particular series is actually different than the ones that we've done before. Most of the series that we do are typically four to eight weeks long, including some of the series that we've done on, on books of the Bible. But this series is probably going to be a little bit, maybe even quite a bit longer, because in this series we're going to walk all the way through Mark from beginning to end. And the reason why we're going to do this is because we're at a place in our congregation that we have all committed to be all in, that we have all committed to be on mission for Christ, and we are earnestly seeking to follow Jesus where he leads. We want to follow his example, and the book of Mark is really ideally suited to help us on our next step of our journey, because as we talked about before, the book of Mark is all about Jesus being the servant of God. Where Matthew was all about uh, uh, Jesus being the Messiah, the King, and Luke was all about uh, Jesus being the perfect human being, and, and John was all about you know, Jesus being God in the flesh. Mark was written to the Gentiles to demonstrate that Jesus was the servant of God, the perfect servant of God. In fact, in Mark, you will discover there is less about what Jesus says than the other Gospels, and there's more about what Jesus does than all the other Gospels. And so this is a really great opportunity you know, to, in essence, follow in the footsteps of Jesus. The book of Mark is an action-packed treasure that really races to Christ's most important work, his life and death and resurrection. In fact, it's been said by one commentator that the gospel of Mark is a, is a passion narrative with a, an extended introduction. So the book really moves very, very quickly, and there's a, and there's a lot to learn on the way. And so we're going to read this together, we're going to unpack it together, uh, and we're going to do this section by section and verse by verse. And so, now that you kind of have this understanding, you know, in the background of the book of Mark and and where we're going, um, let me just share with you before we jump in here, three goals that I have for this series. Number one, as always, as we preach the gospel, because it is the power of God to save all who believe, the first goal of the series is to bring people to faith in Christ. If you happen to be someone who doesn't believe in Christ, or you know, if you've never really fully trusted in Jesus or put your faith in him, we hope that this series helps you to see the truth and that you can repent and believe the gospel. That's always number one. Number two, we want to help you grow. The second goal is to promote spiritual growth in you individually in our congregation corporately by strengthening your theological foundation by strengthening what, what we know about who God is and who we are in light of who God is. And so, we're, and so we will talk every week about the theological truths that we find in Mark. And number three is we want to help you to take action. Our third goal is to mobilize you and our entire congregation to take action based on what we learn. As we have committed to... to to being all in for Christ and to be on mission for him, and as we've committed to passionately pursue Jesus where he leads, right? our aim then is to use the word of God to mobilize you, to motivate you, and all of us to take action and to be doers of the word and not simply hearers of the word. The goal is for us to take the next step in our walk with Christ 
And once we get there, we want to help you take the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step, and so on and so forth. That's the goal. We want to help you move forward in your walk with Christ. And so with all of that, then, by way of an introduction, turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And verse 1 reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this opening verse right here is actually subject to quite a bit of debate amongst evangelical scholars because there are some that say that this verse actually isn't the very first line or the very first verse of the book. Actually, that this is the title, that this is Mark's title for his gospel. The title is The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Kind of a weird title, but some people think that's the title, right? And that the actual first verse, then, of, the, of this book is, Behold, I send my, my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Where Mark then begins to talk about John the Baptist. That essentially, you know, some say that, that the story begins with John the Baptist. Now, there are many people who disagree with that, and they say, no. Verse 1 is actually the starting point of the gospel. It's not a title, right? Now, what I want you to understand is it doesn't matter, right? Who is right or wrong here, you know? Uh, theologians will argue about everything, I promise. Okay? It doesn't matter who's right or wrong here. The truth is, whether it's a title of the gospel or the opening line of the gospel, verse 1 is super important because in verse 1, Mark makes some gigantic theological claims right from the start. Notice what he says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, that from the very beginning, Mark declares a huge and important theological truth. You see, only only Jesus Christ is not only the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God, which means He is divine. Jesus is God. Mark, from the very beginning of his gospel, unapologetically declares the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not as clear That's how John did it when he said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But he certainly makes it clear that Jesus is divine when he says that Jesus is the Son of God. The thing is, is everybody in that culture, in that time period, Jew and Gentile alike, knew what this expression meant. They knew that the person being referred to was divine. They knew that the Son of God was both eternal and divine in his nature. And so, by Mark saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he is drawing a line in the sand from the very beginning, declaring that Jesus is God in the flesh. That is the very beginning of his gospel. That's the beginning of the good news itself, that Jesus our Savior is God. Which means, it's Jesus himself who came to save us. It is Jesus himself who came to rescue us. That is the implications of verse 1. And so for us as followers of Christ, we both must embrace this truth and declare this truth. Jesus is not some created being. Jesus is not some lesser God among gods. Jesus is not an exalted man who is working his way to become God. He's not simply just some wise prophet, and he's not just some teacher or just some enlightened man. Jesus is not simply a perfect example for us to follow, to be human. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is God in the flesh. The foundation that we must always stand on and the truth that Mark establishes from the very start is that Jesus is God in verse 1. Now, beginning in verse 2, he says, as is written 
In Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. After declaring who Jesus is, then Mark begins to tell the story of John the Baptist, and he does so by first referring to the prophecies found in, in Isaiah chapter 40 that God would send someone before the Messiah would come. He would send someone declaring the arrival of the Messiah. Well, actually, in the text here, um, this text is a combination of quotes from three different Old Testament books. You have Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 43. Mark basically pulls three different Old Testament books together in order to emphasize the point, right? That someone was prophesied about, there's somebody was ahead of time declared by God that they would come crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And what you and I need to understand is, is that this fact is so important that all of the gospel writers made a point to address it. That, that, that John the Baptist and what his, his role was so important that all of the Gospels talk about it. All the Gospel narratives mention John the Baptist and his mission, and they refer to this specific prophecy about him coming. Right? And, and this is important for two basic reasons. Mark, like the other Gospel writers, established the Gospel of Jesus Christ, number one, on God's faithfulness to keep his promise, because that's exactly what this is. The prophecy is a promise to send a herald into the world before the Messiah comes, declaring his arrival. And John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that promise. It's a clear demonstration that God kept his promise. And so Mark makes it clear that God is faithful to keep his promises. And on that truth, Mark begins to build his gospel. And then number two, the gospel of Mark is established on the word of God. You see, the second theological truth that, that Mark deals with in his gospel is the fact that the Word of God is authoritative. And this is important to us, especially now, because there's a movement in the Christian faith, especially in America today, that is trying to actively separate the Christian faith from the Word of God. I know that might sound really strange to your ears, but that's exactly what's happening And the reason for that is because there is so much cultural pushback against the Word of God. There are so many people who just absolutely reject the idea and get offended by the idea that that the Word of God is authoritative. So much of culture and so many people who, who don't know Christ refuse to even consider the Bible to be authoritative and accurate. And because of that, there are some pastors trying to move away from using the Word of God to preach the gospel. In fact, there's a very famous pastor who I used to love to follow who says, you need to stop saying, the Bible says. He says, don't say that no more. Don't say that the Bible says. Referring, you know, to the Bible as authoritative. He says, because the Bible doesn't say anything. These are his words, not mine. He says, the Bible doesn't say anything. It's just a collection of ancient manuscripts. It has no authority to speak on its own. And there are many pastors in some big cities in some big churches who put forward the idea that, that we're not Christians because of what the Bible says. We're Christians because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that Christianity is not built on the Word of God, but instead it's built on the historical nature of the resurrection. And I want you to understand, okay, I have myself argued that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one of the most attested to historical events in all antiquity, and I can defend that position. 
The evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is crazy overwhelming. Even the basic evidence, all, almost all scholars agree, even the skeptical ones. And those who reject the, the resurrection do so not because of the evidence. They do so because they have, have a preconceived idea. They have decided with the assumption that there is no such thing as the supernatural. And that for they just rule out the resurrection no matter how much evidence there is for it. And so the historical nature of the resurrection is a compelling you know, argument for the Christian faith. But I want you to hear me on this. The historical nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a sufficient basis for faith in Christ. Without the word of God, it is just simply a strange, weird phenomena that happened in history. Without the word of God, we don't understand the significance and the meaning of the resurrection. We don't understand the atonement. We don't understand the propitiation that it makes. We don't understand even the point. Without the word of God, we don't even know who Christ is. Without the word of God, there is no gospel. Without the word of God, there is no salvation. That's why even the gospel writers themselves make a point to establish the truth and the authority of their accounts on the written word of God. They had a very high view of scripture. Notice that Mark says, as it is written, he appeals immediately to scripture. He has a high view of the Word of God, but he's not alone because Jesus himself had a high view of Scripture. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus would say, as it is written, as it is written. Like the time when he was tempted by the devil, Jesus thwarted the devil by citing Scripture. He said, in one instance, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus himself had a high view of Scripture, and so did Mark, and so must we. The gospel is founded on the faithfulness of God and the authority of Scripture. And Mark cites the promise of the Old Testament that God would send someone before the Messiah declaring his coming, and that someone then is John the Baptist. In verse 4, Mark says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, there is so much in these two verses that I could spend really all of our time unpacking this, but it is my aim to take a little longer to go through Matthew, but I don't want to take five years to get through it, okay? I mean, John Piper, one of my favorite pastors, took eight years to get through the book of Romans. I don't think I have it in me to, to do that. So. But I, what I want, do want to do instead is draw your attention to a couple of, of key points. Eight years. Think about that. I mean, I've been a pastor for six years now, right? Eight years. Okay. So anyway, so I want to draw your attention to a couple of, of key points. First, I want you to understand that John is the literal fulfillment of this, this prophecy. Right? John was, was literally in the wilderness as a voice heralding the coming of Christ. He literally fulfilled what God said would happen hundreds of years before. Second, I want you to notice how, how he was preparing the way for Christ. Right? Because a herald would go before a king, announcing that the king was coming and making sure that it was safe for him to pass. How was, was John doing so? Well, he was preaching... And calling sinners to repentance. That is how he was preparing the way for the Lord. Right? 
That's what it says. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was calling people to repent of their sins in preparation of the coming of Christ. And I want you to notice the response here. It says, All the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were coming out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It was a revival. You see, revival begins when the gospel is proclaimed and people repent of their sins. That's when you will have revival. That's when you will see a mass movement of God is when when the word is faithfully proclaimed and the hearers of that word respond to that word in repentance. You see, one of the things that we hear all the time in modern church over and over and over again is, is there's this call for a need for revival. You hear people say all the time, our country needs revival. Right? Our church needs revival. Our community needs revival. We just need revival. And, the tr- and it's the truth. We absolutely do need revival. But so many people fail to understand what that means. Because they think that revival is revival meetings. That they just have this special thing you put on the calendar and they, because they preach for a solid week that that's a revival meeting. Or that, we, that revival is about us doing a better job as church marketers finding ways to reach people and to get out you know, in the community. Other people think that it's just doing more outreach. But revival has nothing to do with those things. Revival begins when the word of God is proclaimed and people respond to the word in repentance. That's when revival begins. And notice, that's what happened here. And they had a revival on their hands. People from all around were coming to repent and confess their sins. You need to understand that this wasn't just the Gentiles either. This was the Jews. People who, understand, these were people who were taught from, from when they were little kids that they were right with God simply because of their heritage and their Jewish identity. They were believed and were taught that if you're a man and you're circumcised, you are guaranteed to be saved. But here they are coming from the city and coming from the country, the rich and the poor and the Jew and the Gentile. They're all coming to repent of their sins. Why? Because of the effect of the word of God. Because of the effect of the gospel. You see, the real life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ begins by making us aware of our sin. It convicts us of our sin. This is the truth of the gospel that we cannot ever lose sight of. The gospel motivates people to repentance because of its conviction in, of sin. We begin to understand who we are and and the overwhelming problem we face because of sin. We're broken sinners under the wrath of God. And and that's the beginning of the gospel. Because the truth is for there to be good news, there must be bad news that the good news overcomes. This This is a gospel issue. Because think about it, there's no reason at all to be motivated to repentance. There's no reason to be motivated to come and repent if sin isn't the issue. This text right here would be the weirdest text in the entire Bible and would make no sense to us if sin isn't the issue. All of these people are responding to John's cry in the wilderness to repent is because, because it would be just a, a weird historical fact if sin wasn't the issue. The gospel calls us to repentance because it convicts us of our sin. And that is what we see here in the text. John is proclaiming a message of repentance and preparation of the coming of Christ. And people were convicted deeply of their sin and they came by the droves in repentance and confession to be baptized. You see, the third theological truth that Mark deals with in the gospel is 
is that um, the gospel produces repentance. And what we need to understand is, is that any gospel that does not bring conviction and inspires repentance is not a gospel. And I say that cautiously. Because the fact of the matter is, is we always want to emphasize the love of God. We always want to emphasize the goodness of God. We want to emphasize the fact that we were born in his image, that there is something intrinsically valuable about human beings. But if the gospel we preach does not ever bring a person squarely in the mirror to see who they really are in light of who God is, if we never get them there, it is not the gospel. If, if the gospel we preach only makes people feel better about who they are, but doesn't help them to deal with their sin problem, it is not the gospel. This is so important for us to understand because, because hear me on this. There is no salvation without repentance. Because faith and repentance are inextricably linked. They are two sides of the same coin. Without repentance, there is no salvation. That is why in the coming uh, sections of Mark, we will read Jesus' own words on this subject. The very first thing that Jesus preaches about, the very first words out of his mouth are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Look, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe are the things that Jesus said first. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The gospel of Jesus Christ produces Repentance. The truth of God's word produces repentance. The gospel, if it is a real gospel, will bring the conviction of sin and inspire repentance that moves us to that faith in Jesus Christ. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about repentance and faith and how they are connected and how they work together. But notice here John's proclamation. His proclamation does just that. It inspires repentance and confession. And people come from all over to be baptized, right? That is, that, that is the power of the gospel. Now, there are some people who get tripped up here about John's baptism of repentance and what it means. Because the baptism that he performs here is before the resurrection of Christ. So obviously there are some things that they don't know, right? And this, this baptism is before Jesus is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what is the significance then of this particular baptism that he's being practiced by, by John? Well, the significance of the baptism here is really similar, not exactly the same, similar to the significance of baptism that we practice today. And what that is, is baptism is the outward expression of an inward reality. There are differences between the baptisms, okay? But, they, but in essence, they still have the same heart. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. And these people were coming to John because something in them then had changed. They became aware of their sins, and they, became, became, they came to realize right, that their religiousness and the ritual practices that they were engaged in and who they were genetically could not take away their sins and save them. They became aware of the fact that they needed a Savior. And so they came to John in repentance and in confession, preparing their hearts to receive and trust in the coming Messiah, the one who was coming soon, Jesus. And that baptism then that they participated in was, a, was an outward expression of that inward change. That baptism indicated they were ready. They were ready to turn away from their sins and trust and, and put their faith in the one who was to come. 
the one that John was proclaiming about, the one that John was declaring about, they were ready to trust Jesus as the Messiah. And so their baptism was a symbol that, that heart changed. Now, next week we're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus Christ, because that's the next section. And we're going to talk about our believer's baptism that has been practiced since the resurrection. And we're going to talk and see how all these things are related. But what we need to understand primarily is that John's baptism is not what brought them forgiveness. Okay? Their bapti- his baptism could not make them forgiven. Baptism doesn't save anyone. It never has. It never will. Not any baptism. Not, not John's baptism. Not our believer's baptism. That does not make us saved. Baptisms don't save people. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. And that baptism that he was administering was to demonstrate that people had repentant hearts. Which was inspired then by the bold proclamation of the truth by John the Baptist. Which, by the way, is actually leads to the first thing that we need to know about what, what applies to us from this text. You see, in this text, what we see is the power of the gospel. We see the power of the word of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, because, it is the power of God to save It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, the bold proclamation of the truth, is the power of God to change the world. John's proclamation motivated all kinds of people to repent. His bold stand for the truth prepared people to receive Christ. The gospel is power, and so we must be bold in its proclamation. As followers of Jesus Christ, and as people who are called to his redemptive mission, we are always always, always to be bold in sharing the hope of Christ and the truth of the gospel. We're to be bold in, in the, the gospel we proclaim. We're to be bold in our stance that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. We're to be bold in the fact that the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. We need to be bold in the truth that our response to the gospel is repentance and belief. We're not to be timid. We're not to be ashamed. We're to be bold and we're to call people to openly trust Christ as their Savior. But at the very same time, that boldness must be tempered by the life that we live. Look at verse 6. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, not only was John the Baptist bold, he was also very humble. He was humble in his appearance. I mean, because let's face it, there's nothing intrinsically fashionable about clothes made out of camel's hair. Have you seen a camel? Right, exactly. And there's nothing, nothing intrinsically comfortable about it either. I mean, we might not all be fashionable, but I think most of us know how to dress comfortable, right? Camel's hair doesn't qualify. He was also humble in what he lived off of. I mean, wild honey sounds pretty good, but locusts, I mean, which is like related to grasshoppers, no thank you. That is not the gourmet meal that, that, I, that I would be looking for. In fact, I think, you know, a burrito supreme from Taco Bell would probably be like a five-star meal by comparison. Right? John was super humble. 
you know, in, in what he needed to survive on. He didn't have expensive clothes. He didn't, have, he didn't eat exquisite food. He didn't have fancy transportation. He walked everywhere he went. Right? He didn't have a big office. He didn't have a big church. He didn't have a big ego. He just had just enough. He needed enough to survive. Right? He was humble in his means and his needs. But most importantly, most importantly, he was humble before Christ. I mean, look, look what it says here. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. John's like, he is so much higher than me, I'm not even worthy enough to be a house you know, servant to take his shoes off and wash his feet. Like, even that is like too good of a thing for me. You see, John, as bold as he was, I mean, in one passage of, of John's account, he was flat out calling people vipers. I mean, he was calling people out in their sins boldly. But for as bold as he was, he knew exactly where the glory belongs. He knew who was to be glorified. The glory belongs to Jesus. In fact, John later on in his ministry was asked when he, when he, why he wasn't baptizing as many people as he was before. Why are, is Jesus' disciples baptizing everybody, but you're not really baptizing anyone? In fact, John, your ministry basically is over. I mean, you were this superstar preacher and everybody came to see you. Everybody wanted to know you. Everybody wanted to have you baptize them. Even Jesus wanted you to baptize them. But what happened to your ministry? Well, John simply replied, he must increase and I must decrease. John understood that being on mission for Christ is about humility. It's about being humble and giving glory to the one that's due. And that is Christ himself. And as followers of Jesus Christ, people on mission for Christ, we must walk in this tension of boldness and humility. We must never be ashamed of the foundational truths and the doctrines of our faith. But we must never be arrogant in who we are and what we know. We must never compromise the truth for a second. But we must never be brash and unloving because we are just like everyone else around us. Broken sinners. The only difference between us and them is that we are saved by the grace of God. Not something we earned, not something we did. And our lives need to be marked by these two ideas. Boldness and humility. We are to boldly share the hope and truth of Christ. But we must live and act and treat others with sincere, grace-driven humility. That is how we're to be on mission for Christ. I heard someone say, my brother didn't ever come back to church when he was a kid because we grew up in a denomination that never taught the love of God. And that breaks my heart because there is that place in all of our Christian lives where we want to fall one direction or the other. Where we want to always be pointing out sin or we just always want to be just loving. You know, that tension between grace and truth. This is the same idea here. Let us always be willing to tell people the, the truth because we, do that, because we love them, but at the same time, let every word be, be flavored with the grace of God. That's how we're to follow Jesus, just like John did, proclaiming the truth and living humbly before God. Now, wrapping things up, John says, 
I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And right here, he, po- he, he points us to one of the greatest promises in the Bible. Because not only are we baptized into the faith symbolically through water, we are supernaturally baptized into the family of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. We become one of God's children. We are adopted by the power of the Holy Spirit. The moment we were, we, a believer repents and believes the gospel and puts his or her trust in Jesus Christ, he is supernaturally baptized by the Holy Spirit. He is supernaturally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Salvation and baptism of the Holy Spirit are simultaneous events. The moment you get saved, God, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. Number one, as a seal and proof that you have been saved and been moved from death to life, because the Holy Spirit is the seal and the deposit that proves you belong to God. And number two, the Holy Spirit empowers us to break free from the power of sin and strengthens us to live as God calls us to live. And as we know, as we talked about for weeks and weeks and weeks, we have been called to what? To be on mission. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, he gives us his righteousness and he rose from the grave proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and then he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sins. And then he ascended into heaven and then sent us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to guide us and comfort us and strengthen us and to be with us until Christ finally calls us home. So today is a day of decision. Because if you're a believer, I want to call you to live this out. That is part of what we do at church, is we exhort, we exposit the truth, but then we exhort you to take action. As a believer, you need to decide to live this out. You need to decide if you're going to follow where Christ leads, which means you need to decide that you're going to boldly proclaim the truth, all the while living humbly before your God. And remembering, as we said before, your job is to spread the seed and to not give up on people because God can and he does change people's hearts. Now, if you're someone who's not a believer or if you know somebody who's not a believer, 2,000 years ago, Christ, God in the flesh, came into the world and died on the cross for our sins. And he loved us so much that he sent Jesus in the world to suffer and die. You see, the bad news is that we're sinners under the wrath of God, but the good news is God made a way for us to be forgiven and restored in relationship to him. All we need to do is repent and believe. That's how simple the gospel is. Repent and believe. Repent means to turn away from your sin and turn towards God and believe the gospel. That Jesus died in your place and was rose again and now lives with the right hand of the Father. And today, anyone can do that. And I would encourage you, if you are a believer, then help someone do that. But as we wrap up and we close this morning, the challenge this week then is to go boldly out of here. Don't let this be a sermon that you heard go, man, that was good. That convicted me. I see where I need to change. Okay, walk out of here with a purpose saying to yourself, I will do this. I will be bold, and I will be humble, and I will share the hope of Christ. I will continue to do this until Christ calls me home or until Jesus returns.
Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for, again, for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Mark. We thank you for his observations. We thank you for the words that you inspired him to write. We thank you, Lord God, for the truth that you have made so plain for us. Truths that we can stand on and hold on to. The truth that Jesus is divine and God in the flesh. The truth that, the, that your word is your authoritative word. The truth that the gospel inspires and promotes repentance. And the truth is that salvation is about repentance and belief. And I pray, Father, that all of us then would do that. That if we haven't already, that we would repent and believe. And if we have already, Lord, that we would just continue to repent and believe. Because repentance and belief is an ongoing thing. That we continue to repent of the things that get in the way of us and our relationship with you. And we continue to believe the promise. Because that's what we're holding on to. The promise of the gospel. The promise of your salvation. And I thank you for that. And I thank you, Lord God, for this church family. And I pray, Father God, you'd raise up a people here, Lord God, who will take this truth out into the world and go boldly proclaiming the goodness of Jesus and humbly living it out and loving people where they are. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.